As you're well aware, this past Friday, Donald Trump was inaugurated as the 45th president of these United States. Now, I'm not certain what your political leanings are, if that's a, a joyous occasion for you or a disappointment. You may not be fond or you may be excited about the new administration, but I know this about us. We are deeply divided about the direction in which this country should be headed. At least that's what national polls tell me. We've driven and drawn our lines in the sand politically, not based on really whose we are, but based on the political identity that we've come to represent or to know. And I think everybody in this room has a leaning politically one way or another. You may call yourself a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent, someone that is a Libertarian or maybe identifies with the Green Party. Maybe you're just one of those who says, I don't care. I just don't care. It's the same lust for power. It's just a new set of friends. Maybe that's you. Or you look at Donald Trump and you look at Barack Obama and you say, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, it's all the same to you. But I do know this. That many of us have attached our identity to politicians and to politics and to policies. I know that about us. And whether you vote, don't vote, or act like you don't care, we all do it. We, we identify with a certain kind of philosophy politically. And what's even worse, politicians know this about us. And so they take you and the things that make you you, and they try to segregate you so that you become like them. And they say things like, if you're this race, then you need to identify with this party. If you have this kind of economic status, then you need to identify with this kind of party. If you stand for this, then you need to be for us. And they have, in some ways, created the division. But we've allowed it, haven't we? And I would like to just kind of ask you the question. No, not kind of, just I'm going to ask you the question. How does God feel about all this? That was my question this last week. Does God have something to say to us about his political identity? Is he political? Should we be political? Does God really want us to be defined by a politician? Does he want us to be defined by a policy? Does he want us to be defined by a president? Does he want us to be defined by our nationality or our heritage? What does God have to say about all this stuff? I think it's a pretty good question for someone who's a Christian. I mean, does he have political leanings? If Jesus were to vote, would he, be, would he vote Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green Party, Libertarian, whatever else is out there? You, let, me just say, let me just stop. Because before some of you go, of course he's going to vote the way I vote. That's why I vote. Let me bring down the hammer. He doesn't vote the way you're going to vote. He doesn't vote. As a matter of fact, you can look at Jesus' life and find out he never was political, not once, ever, 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 ever political. And even though every party tries to claim them as his own, he would never join a single party because he wasn't political. He transcended politics. He rose above politics. He didn't start his revolution through the polls. He started his revolution through preaching. He didn't get his disciples together and say, okay, now everybody, let's sign a petition and let's get this, let's get this item, agenda pushed forward. No, he just said, the revolution starts when you change your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The revolution begins there. He didn't look at Caesar, who was his president at the time, his government, and say, let's rebel against Caesar, even though there was one in his own 12, his 12 that was a zealot, which meant he wanted to destroy anything that was Roman. He kept a sword on him at all times and tried to persuade Jesus to pull out the sword so that there would be a defeat, an overthrow of the government. And Jesus said, are you crazy? I love you, but I think you're crazy. 
And there's some of us in this room, I think Jesus would look at and say, I love you, but I think you're getting crazy with some of this stuff here. You want to rebel against the government? Jesus didn't do that. When asked to pay taxes, what did he say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar, which is kind of a modern day teaching of if you want to accept federal notes as your currency, be expect to give back to the federal government. That's what he's saying. He didn't bicker about it. He just said, look, I'm starting a revolution and it's not a political revolution, but it is going to influence politics. That revolution starts on the heart and it works itself out. It doesn't trickle down from president to people. Okay, uh, let me stop blathering. Let me just get into the scriptures for a second because some of you are really uncomfortable right now because you're thinking, is he going to make a political stand? No, I'm going to tell you who we are in Christ and allow you to define your politics that way. The Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 9 tells us about Jesus' political identity, if he had one at all, and I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus would not vote Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever you think he would vote as, because he transcends all this stuff. And I want you to see that Jesus is the foundation for governments. It all starts with him. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, you know this kind of as... A scripture that's often quoted around Christmas time because it is a foretelling, a prophecy of Jesus who is ultimately born in Bethlehem and called Jesus. But at this point, Isaiah just knows him as the Messiah. He doesn't know his name is going to be Jesus, but he knows his character and somewhat of his identity because God had given him that, that prophecy. And here's that prophecy, Isaiah 9 verse 6. Let's look together. For to us, a child is born, a son is given, and The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He'll be the Prince of Peace, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. You want to know what Jesus' political identity is? Here it is. He's in charge. No one is in charge of him. He is his own man. He transcends it. He's above it. And if you're wondering, well, you know, I, I think he'd be a Democrat. No, I think he'd be a No, he's not. He, he is, he's neither because God does not need government. Government needs God. And until we finally come to this conclusion of expecting everybody in government to be Christianized or however you want to classify it, that's not where this revolution begins. It begins in the heart by accepting the identity of Jesus Christ. And because he knows who he is, when you accept Jesus, you know who you are. And you will not allow politics to define you. And you will not allow politicians to divide you. And that's what this sermon is about. Look with me at the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And then I want you to keep a note there because we're going to go back to it in a later time in the sermon. But when Christianity was in its infancy, God had sent out apostles. It was a select group of men that had the power to do miracles, to bring authority to what they were saying. And the apostle Paul was one such apostle. He went and he made religious missionary journeys. One city he stopped in was an important city, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important city of its modern age. Ephesus was the most splendid city. It was a capital city. I mean, it was ground zero if you wanted to spread the gospel. And he did a good job of preaching God's word. 
So many people in the city of Ephesus gave their life over to Christ, started to believe in Christ, and formed churches all around it. But they were struggling with their identity. Here's what they were thinking. Christ is good and all, but I'm an Ephesian first, and I'm a Christian second. And Paul says, we need to get a handle on this, because that's not how God identifies you. God identifies you as a Christian first and Ephesian second. And they had a lot to be proud of, though. I mean, we have a lot to be proud of in the United States, but they had a lot to be proud of. Capital city, their major economic boost was their trade. They had a port city. They had one of the biggest marketplaces the world has ever known and still has known. They were at the entertainment capital, 25,000 seat theater. They had all sorts of things going for them, a wonderful government that protected them, provided for them. They were artisans and they were known for their artwork. Unfortunately, their artwork was to make graven images, which means false idols. And just like Detroit is known as the Motor City because they make cars, Ephesus was known as the Silver City because they made silver idols in the form of the goddess Diana. But they had an impressive temple to her, probably the most impressive temple in the known world at the time. And they sat back and said, isn't it good to be an Ephesian? Aren't we blessed to be an Ephesian? God bless Ephesus. This is, this is the city on a hill. This is what everyone aspires to. And we get to live in this place. How awesome is this? And they had a pride to be Ephesians. And Paul says, look, I know you have pride as being a part of the city of Ephesus, but please do not let that be your primary identity. Ephesians 1, let's look at verse 1 about midway through. It says, to God's holy people in Ephesus. So Paul, right away, he wants to establish that these people are not citizens of Ephesus or citizens of Rome, that they are God's holy people. And then he says... The faithful, would you, would you read this next part with me? The faithful in Christ Jesus. You could tell who's in their Bible and who's not right there. Let's say it. In Christ Jesus. That is important to understand what's going to be said for the rest of this time here. In Christ Jesus. Paul wants them to know that above all things, you might be an Ephesian, you might be a part of Rome, but you are, let's say it, in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And that's the most important thing about you. That is the best definition that God can give you. That you're in Christ Jesus. And that's going to change every aspect of your life. It's called a Christian worldview. And you're going to start seeing things through Christ's point of view rather than your own point of view or a politician's point of view or a president's point of view. You're going to start seeing things through Christ's lens of the world. But you know what the problem is? We get so divided over this stuff. We get so divided over what politicians say is, if you're with this, then you're for us. And being categorized, segregated. It's exactly how Satan wants to work. You know this, right? Satan is here to kill, steal, destroy. He wants to divide people. That's what Satan is good at, dividing people. You know what God is good at? God is good at uniting people. That's what he did with Christ. Christ came to this world to unite you with him. With God. He is the great uniter. And in, in Christ, it changes all things. But when we allow our political identity to overshadow our Christianity, strange things happen. Strange things happen. We say things like, you know what? Uh, I'm this particular persuasion of politics because I'm pro life. 
And the Bible talks about the sanctity of life, and it just makes sense that I land on this side of the aisle. Or I'm this on this side of the aisle because the Bible talks about traditional marriage of a man and a woman. And since this party agrees with that, that's the kind of the leaning. Uh, or, or social justice, you know, the Bible talks a lot about helping your neighbor, loving your neighbor, and making sure that everybody has the same kind of opportunities. And so I'm on this side of the aisle because this political party says that's who I should identify with. Or you say, you know what, universal health care, Jesus' heart certainly was absolutely crushed when he met people that were distraught and victimized by health issues. And so I'm on this side of the aisle because, you know, Christ, if he were here today, would want to doctor all of them. And I think that's the responsibility as, as a nation that we do the same. And you know what I would say to all of that? You are absolutely right. God is for all that. Everything you said was a truth statement right there, except for the fact where you wanted to identify yourself by saying this party or that party. And what I find so funny is, why is it that every major political party claims that they have rights to God? Have you noticed this? If one has rights, the other has rights, then who, where, where, is God a Republican or a Democrat? That's a, that's my question. If both claim rights, is he liberal or conservative? Does he care? <laughs> Let's get into Scripture. Let's look at Joshua chapter 5. Would you turn there with me? Joshua chapter 5. Because let me just state for you and give you something to think about while you have a sandwich at Arby's today and you criticize this sermon. Are you ready? God is not on your side politically. And before we go any further, just to crush your spirits even further, God is not a Republican, God is not a Democrat. He's neither. You think he's going to allow a politician to define who he is? No. You think he's going to allow politics to define who he is? No. You think he's going to allow people to define who he is? Absolutely not. God's not on your side politically. He's on your side in faith. He defines himself. Old Testament book, Joshua chapter 5. Here's Joshua. He is the general of the army of God's people. And he's about ready to take an important city called Jericho. He's taking this as a part of the promised land. Friends, this area of the world is still being disputed over about who has rights to what. Let me just, let me just make a foreign policy to, uh, statement to you. Let me get myself in deeper water today, okay? The land that's being argued over, is it Palestine? Is it, is it Israel's? Let me tell you whose it is. It's God's. That's who it is. It's whomever God wants to say it is to you. And you know who he did that to? He said that to the Israel's. This is your land, and I'm going to give it to you. And he said, this is yours. Be in control of it. You know, the Israelites, they've never taken advantage of that. They still don't. They've never taken advantage of that. And here they're finally doing it. They're taking over the city of Jericho. Squatters had come in sat on the land that was prepared for them. They built a giant city with these huge walls around it. Now Joshua has to go and overtake it. And he's saying to God, what plans do I need to come up with to overthrow this huge, impressive city that's well defended? So he's making a strategy on how to defeat this enemy. And in verse 15 of chapter 5, or rather verse 13, uh, a man shows up miraculously, and here's what it says. says, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, here's the key line, are you for us or for our enemies? 
Verse 14, neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua, he fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did that. Big question in this text is, who's the guy that shows up miraculously? Who's the guy that shows up miraculously with a sword in his hand and tells Joshua, I'm not for you or for your enemy? Who is that guy? Well, I'll tell you who he's not. I know he's not an angel because anytime in Scripture when angels were seen, those who are earthly beings like us announced the heavenly beings and said, you're an angel. And they'd say, yep, I've come as a messenger of the Lord. And they come pre-announced. Number two, no person of God in the scriptures ever worshiped an angel or bowed down or gave reverence to an angel. Yet Joshua does here. Number three, no person in the scriptures ever calls an angel Lord. That's a phrase that's only reserved for one person. That is Christ. So who is this person? Well, you notice that what happens there is when Joshua sees him, he falls to his knees and he is told to take off his sandals. Can you remember another place in scripture where someone is asked to take off their sandals because they're on holy ground? The story of Moses, the burning bush. He comes into the presence of God. God says, let's have nothing remove us, especially nothing that's dead, the leather of the cow. And let's get that removed. Nothing shall separate us. And so you're standing on holy ground. Let me and you be one unity. That's what God's all about. And so here we have what is called by theologians a Christophany. Christophany. Four times in scripture, we see the person of Jesus Christ presented. Although we don't know his name, Jesus, we know he is God, the son, one of the Trinity. Four times. Once here in Joshua chapter five, he is known as the commander of the army of the Lord. Once in Genesis 18, when Abraham and Sarah laugh at God that they'll give birth to a boy. Once in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with God in Daniel three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and that unknown person who looks like the son of God in the fiery furnace with them. Joshua 5, he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, which makes sense, which makes sense for someone like the Messiah, Jesus, to say such a thing. Go back to the New Testament, listen to what takes place at the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens there right before Christ is arrested. His disciples, who are looking for a rebellion through the sword, pull out their sword, don't they? Jesus, now is the time to take over Rome, and they pull out the sword. Peter pulls out the sword, and he chops one of the soldier's ears off. Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on the disciple's head. Now, if you knew Jesus was going to do that, wouldn't you just go for an arm and a leg and just keep on going? Hey, he's going to be healed. Good thing here. What does Jesus tell Peter? Peter, put away your sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion then was a form of of, uh, amount of soldiers by the Romans used 72,000 heavenly beings. Now, wouldn't the commander of the army of the Lord be able at his beck and call at any time command heavenly soldiers? Yes. So Christ is in front of uh, Joshua, rather. And Joshua says, hey, are you for me? I'm about ready to take over Jericho. I'm about ready to defeat it. I'm making plans. Are you on my side? Or are you going to make sure that the enemy wins and I get defeated? And what's the response of God the Son? Joshua, 
you don't get it. Neither. I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. Joshua, I am calling you to be on my side. Man, if we start taking that kind of thinking into our politics, that I'm not on the right, I'm not on the left, I'm on God's side. That's whose side I'm on. And there is only one supreme commander of this world, and it's God himself. And I'm going to let him to define my life. I'm going to let him to define my politics. I'm going to let him to define my personality. You see, God is not a pawn to be used in your political chest match. It's not for him to join your cause or agenda. He's not going to march to your orders or the orders of a politician or a government. He's asking all of us to identify with him and be on his side. And what I find interesting is some of you will walk out of here and still say, I am on his side and that's why I am associated with this political party. You know, the Confederacy and the Union both thought God was on their side. One of the great generals of the Confederacy, Stonewall Jackson, he had said that God was on his side and he was so assured of it that he was as safe on the battlefield as he would be in his own bedroom. Unfortunately, after he said that, his own men accidentally shot him on the battlefield and eight days later he succumbed to his wounds and died. President Lincoln actually had some clarity about sides and should God be on union or confederate. And here's what he said. He said, it's, it's not really a matter if God is on our side or their side. What is really of most importance is, and here's what he said, are we on God's side? He must have read Joshua 5 somewhere in his life. Are we on God's side? If, if we were, we wouldn't be divided, is what he's saying. If we were, we wouldn't be confederate. We wouldn't be union. We would put all that behind us and we would be in Christ and find our oneness there. You know, it was a defining moment for Joshua when he moved to God's side. It was a defining moment for him, not because he won the victory over Jericho, because he had to submit to God and do it God's way. Strange way to win a battle. March seven times around a city. At the seventh time, scream as loud as you can and God's own hand will knock down the walls. That's a strange way to win a battle. But yet when he did it God's way, came to God's side, he finally found peace in his life and he found victory in his life. And there was unity in the nation of Israel. Last week, I read an article, just finished it up. It was called The U.S. of Awesome. It reminded every U.S. citizen that read that article that why we are split politically, I mean split politically, to thank God every day that you're part of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Man, I read, I read that article, and the sh- my shirt button's just about busted out, man. I was like, so much pride, my chest was swelling up, and I was like, yeah, we are. You know, they're talking about our military might and how we can blow up the world a hundred times over. We have so much power, we can even kill ourselves if we want to, I guess. I don't know. Talking about our economic status. I don't know if you're aware of this because we talk so much about economic politics and we let it to divide us all the time. We let, politics, we let politicians divide us by our economic status all the time. But did you have any idea that our nation holds about 20, a quarter percent of the, the nation's wealth? There is... 
There's not even a nation close to that. Not even, you can tally up nation after nation after nation after nation, they don't even get close to holding that much worldly wealth. You are in the most prosperous nation that has ever been when it comes to all the assets and all the money that we can collect together as Americans. It's so impressive. Did you know that you are a part of a nation that has always experienced peaceful transitions in its leadership? Did you know no other nation can say such a thing? 45 times now. We've witnessed the transition of leadership, and yet we have not given up our founding documents. There has not been a coup. There has not been military might that's rolled into D.C. and said, we're taking over now. And for 200 plus years, there's been peaceful transitions of power. Never ever in the history of the world has there ever been anything quite like that. And while there might have been a few thousand rioters yesterday throughout the United States, there were millions, hundreds of millions of more that stayed home and peacefully watched, didn't they? Why? Because we are a peaceful, civil, law-abiding nation. That's why. And the world's never seen anything quite like this. The humanitarian aid that's handed out through this generous nation has never seen anything like it. The leadership, which seems to stay in a position relatively uncorrupt, we might act like this is the Congo, but it's not the Congo. Far from a banana republic. This is a great nation, and we should be very proud to live in it. But we should never allow that pride to supersede our identity in Jesus Christ. And what we've allowed to do is we've allowed ourselves to become defined by nationalism, patriotism, and politicism. And may I just remind you what the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesians, you are in Christ. He defines you. He defines you. You know, the Apostle Paul realized that there were people that struggled with this all over the world. They str- you're struggling with Some of you are struggling with this right now. And he, he recognized that when he preached. He preached in one city called Philippi. And he had to tell them, look, you are, but we are, citizens of heaven. Why don't you just start terming yourself that? That's who you are. You're a citizen of heaven and you are eagerly waiting for our Savior to come from there. Our Lord Jesus Christ, what a great line. Our Lord Jesus Christ has power over everything. I heard Donald Trump didn't want it to rain Friday. Uh, he acted like he didn't care, but then internally, and he didn't want it to rain. Guess what? He didn't have the power of the rain, did he? He didn't have the power over that. But God does. I mean, I know we give our leaders a lot of authority and a lot of power, but they don't have the ultimate power, the supreme power, like Christ has here. Hey, get with me back to Ephesians 2. Turn to Ephesians 2, and, and let's look at this passage of Scripture, because here how it talks about to be defined by Christ. Because there was groups in Ephesus that were saying, they're not like us, they don't think like us, they don't believe like us, they don't identify like us, so they're obviously not us. And Paul says, no, they're us. If they're in Christ, they're us. They're us. Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly, formerly, you who were Gentiles. See, there are people that were marked by being Gentiles, and Paul says, You don't need to be identified that way anymore because you're in Christ. You were called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised. Here's the deal. The Jews would identify themselves through the practice of circumcision. There was no other religion or no other race group that did that but the Jews. And they were very prideful about it. And they looked down their nose at anybody that didn't do that practice. 
And so it continues on. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, here it is, in Christ. Now in Christ. Things change, right? You get a new definition, in Christ. You who once were far away have been brought nearby the blood of Christ. And it continues. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. Love this, love this part right here. Who has made the two groups one. Who has made the two groups one. Why? Because they stopped saying, this identifies us. They stopped saying, well, I am a staunch Green Party member and that identifies me. And they started saying, no, I am in Christ and he's going to be my identifier. The two groups became one and that has destroyed the barriers. You catching this? You want to know how to find unity in the United States? Get everybody to be in Christ. It's not about being politically tolerant. It's about getting everybody in Christ, because he's the uniter, and the dividing walls of hostility will fall apart. The disunity that we experience in the United States is because we've overshadowed Christ with our politics. And friends, the call is today, be in Christ. Find your meaning in Christ, your identity in Christ, and then, I'll be honest, it really won't matter who gets sworn in to the, and takes the oath of office. You won't have sour grapes. You won't want to go to the streets and write. Why? Because you know that Christ is the king of all kings. And then in four and eight years, this is just going to change. But God and his word last forever. You start having a different outlook about authority and government. And you realize, guess what? Governments come and they go. But the word of God, it will last forever. And I will stake my claim in Christ and be a citizen of heaven than rather be a citizen anywhere else. I'm going to use a timeout. Because I think some of you are misreading. Do I still vote? Do I still pick a candidate? You know, the answer there is you got to still vote. You got to still pick a candidate. Well, then what do I do now? If I'm for God's side and not for either side, what do I do now? I'll tell you what you do now. You then acquire of God. God, how direct me to what button I need to push. Direct me to the man or woman that is best going to fear you and walk in your ways. Not if there's a D or an R or an I next to the name. God, who is going to fear you, submit to you, be led by you? Who's going to be the most humble and molded spirit? Who is that going to be? God, I need your discernment right now because I recognize that my vote has consequences to either erode society or build society up. God, I want to be on your side. I want to be on your side. Because I'm a citizen of heaven. So no matter your nationality, your heritage, your religious background, your denomination, Christ gives you that identity and you're now titled and you're given, in a sense, you're given a new ID card, an ID card to heaven. And so what does that mean for all of you that are in Christ? Here's what it means. As a citizen of heaven, you're going to live differently than the citizens of earth. <laughs> That's what it means. And it's part of it. I remember the first time I traveled outside of the United States and I went to this city called Tijuana, Tijuana, Mexico. It's right on the border edge of San Diego. And our junior high group would go down there every month. And we'd spend time at the Tijuana dump where some of the citizens there have made a home. And they were trying to live life off of the trash of 
the city residents. And so we would come with like clothing and food and we'd try to have an impact on their life. But you guys know how mission trips work, right? As much as of an impact you try to make on the people, they're really making an impact on you. And I walked away from that remembering, still what I remember today is, I could not believe that 100 miles away from my home, 100 miles away from my home, that there was such a stark difference in living and how different it was. Skin color, different. Language, different. I thought I had authentic Mexican food before, but I found out there it's different. Customs, different. Traditions, different. Last names, different. First names, completely different. The way they think, different. The way they conclude, different. I was a foreigner in a place that was 100 miles away from home. A foreigner in a place that was 100 miles different away from home. You know what the scriptures say about us in this world? First Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Other translations say strangers and aliens. Strangers, you're the illegal alien. You're undocumented. If you're a Christian, come on, what are you doing here? Your citizenship is in heaven. To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, which is a word that means anybody outside of God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And Peter says, being a citizen of heaven You should be living your life differently. Your attitude should be different. The way that you submit to authority should be different. Jesus kind of put it like this. You be in this world, but you don't become of this world. And you know, as a Christian, what I found out, I don't need government to tell me how to live. God's standards are so much higher than anything government could ever expect for my life. And when you see the laws that are on the pages of a nation versus the laws that are on the pages of God's word, they fail to even compare to the loftiness that God has set for us on how to live. And friends, I would much rather live according to the way Scripture lays us out to live than what any nation expects me on how to live. And when I live according to God's law rather than man's law, I'm going to be a standout. I'm going to be living differently. And I'm going to be living more like a citizen of heaven than a citizen of earth. Here's the second thing. A citizen of heaven, you recognize heaven's ultimate authority. You know, as Christians, we've never been commanded in the scriptures to rebel against authority, regardless of how oppressive it might be. And when governments and earthly authority is talked about in the scriptures, many times it tells Christians that you need to submit. Even though they might be wrong, you need to concede. Even though they might be abusive, you submit to their authority. That's very difficult for a guy like me to take, to submit to an oppressive authority. Yet the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians living in the city of Rome, a city that was persecuted. Christians were, were, were oftentimes uh, used as sport in the Colosseum. And here's what he tells them. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. You think they wanted to hear that back then? They're killing us. We're being used for sport and entertainment. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. I've got, I, if that's the case, I've got a lot of questions for God about some of the authority he's placed on this earth. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. 
So anyone who rebels against authority is doing what? Is rebelling against what God has instituted. Scary line here. And they will be punished. They will be punished. But God, this is a terrible government. I don't agree with any of their policies. Quit being defined by your government. Start being defined by God. You'll find freedom even though there's oppression. And God has established all earthly authorities. He established Donald Trump. He established Barack Obama. Yep. All leaders are given the ability to govern as God is directed, and they're also given the ability to rebel against how God wants them to govern. So what do you do as a citizen of heaven when the earthly authority contradicts the principles of your faith? What do you do? Let's just say there's some crazy law that comes out of Washington that says you can't live out this side of your faith. What do you do? Well, the BBC just announced last week that there are now what they believe to have more believers, Christian believers in the nation of China than there are communist party members in that nation. That's a big deal. There's about 100 million communist party members and now they're speculating that there might be 300 million Christians now in China. But, some of you know, China is a closed country ruled in such a way that they do not allow outside religions and Christians are now forced to meet secretly underground because the Chinese government does not recognize Christianity as a state-run religion. And they say that any religion and any citizen of China must declare their allegiance to the government and party first, and then to their religion. But the book of Ephesians just taught us. Our identity, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our legion goes first. What's the Christians in China to do? Give up Christianity? No, what they've done is they've rebelled against the government, and now they meet in secret under fear of persecution. Yeah, but they're willing to die for that persecution and that faith, I guess. And they say, you know what? This is soundly against the principles that God has established for our life. So you're saying, okay, is there a rule of thumb then when I should rebel against the government when it becomes oppressive? I think there is. I think when you're being forced to live or act in a way that contradicts your faith, you go by your faith and no longer by what the government is telling you to do. You're saying, that's crazy, man. They'll get us killed. It has gotten Christians killed before. You're saying, is that... I mean, is that something God's cool with? You find that in the Bible anywhere? Moses' parents disobeyed the law of the land there. Every Hebrew baby was to be put to death immediately. They say, nah, sanctity of life. We are keeping Moses, and we would rather send him downstream into the hands of God, providence of God, than to have, to have the Egyptians kill him. And they rebelled against the Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, she rebelled against the government. She hid the spies of Israel. When the government came knocking on her door and said, where are those spies? She lied. And she gave them misdirection as to where they went. And you know who the only one who was spared out that city was? Rahab, the prostitute. And she actually makes it into the lineage of Jesus. Jonathan, who was son of King Saul, ate during a statewide fast. You know what the punishment was to eating during a statewide fast? Death. That's a pretty harsh punishment, don't you think? I just had one little piece of food. Die, you know. But the people of Israel rebelled against the law, and they said, Jonathan's not going to die. We like him too much. That's a stupid law. And they spared Jonathan's life. Acts chapter 4 and 5, the disciples were told, stop preaching the name of Jesus because it is illegal to do so. And you know what they told those authorities? They said, we must obey God rather than men. What a great line. 
And so what do we do? Well, you always submit to God before you submit to the government. That's the rule of thumb. Lastly, as citizens of heaven, you put your hope in God and not in government. And this is what becomes a problem for us. We feel like the next person we put into office is going to just change our world. They're going to make everything better if our person wins. Your hope is in the wrong place. Friends, government is limited. It can only provide and protect so much. It is not perfect. It's man-made, yet God established, but man-made. While the Ephesians were proud, I had to bring myself to this truth this week. While the Ephesians were proud, I, I just, and I wrestled with this. While the Ephesians were proud, there is no Ephesus anymore. It pains me to say it. Because what I wrestled with this week is why I am thankful and proud to be an American. The day may one come when there might not be a United States. And then where is my identity? The New Testament It teaches us, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. You are a child of God. You're a citizen of heaven. May these be your identifiers. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So how do you find yourself in Christ? You're baptized into Christ. And you've clothed yourself with Christ. Let's say these last lines together out loud. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Just please keep that slide up there for a moment. Because Paul was a smart man. He knew that when you came to Christ, you still had your race. He, in, in, he, he knew God welcomed your race. It's a part of your upbringing. It's part of what makes you you and makes you special. He knew they were always going to be Jews and circumcised and there was going to be Gentiles who were not going to be circumcised. He knew, he knew our economic status, slave and free, that's economic status stuff. He's saying, look, I know you're still going to, there's going to be rich and poor scattered throughout the church, I get that, but you're going to be in Christ. He knows that you're not going to lose your gender identity. He knows you're going to, men are going to be men, women are going to be women, he gets that. He just says, look, but you're just going to find your identity in Christ. That's what I'm saying here. Look at that scripture for a minute. Look at that scripture. How many times have politicians played identity politics with that? Those four things. Race. They play identity politics all the time with race. Economic status. They do that all the time. Gender. Man, there are all sorts of parties right now that are saying, if you're a woman, then you must be for us. If you're a man, you must be on our side. Or even religion. Hey, any good Christian would vote this way. Any good Catholic would vote this way. Hey, any good, on and on and on. And yet, politicians have used that to divide. And Paul says, you want to break down the walls of division? Here's one thing you need to know. We are all in Christ. If you've given yourself over to Christ, you are one in Christ. There isn't Jew. There isn't race. There isn't religion. There isn't economic status anymore. We are in Christ. Jesus becomes your identity. In Christ, friends, there is no American. There's no Mexican. There's no Republican or Democrat. There's no citizen or immigrant, black, white. There's no Presbyterian or Pentecostal. There's no Hoosier or Boilermaker. No rich or poor, blue or white collar, young or old, single or married, doctorate or dropout, CEO or intern, insider or outsider. Why? We are, let's say it, one in Christ.
And may I say a line that Ben Ray Bean, an old preacher here, used to say all the time, this world is not our home. We are passing through. We are citizens of heaven. That's where our allegiance lies.